Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Let's go to our Bibles. We're going to turn to the first page of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to look at one verse, and we're going to deal with origins today. We've finished Revelation, and now we're going to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Believe it or not, Genesis and the book of Revelation are strongly tied together. There's a lot of matching that goes on there. And so we're going to go through Genesis and look at the foundations, look at the origins, because what prompted me to this, and when I think God prompted me, obviously to go through the book of Revelation, get our end times down, but then get our foundations, because what is under attack right now in our Judeo-Christian society is our foundations. We are losing our foundations as a society, and it's being radically transformed by this neo-Marxist, atheistic, secular mindset, humanistic mindset, whatever you want to call it, that is anti-God. And what happens with that is that you undermine not only the individuals in that culture, but you will undermine the entire society, and we're watching that happen in front of us. I want you to see the first words. We're going to parse this out, but this is the first words of Genesis of your Bible, and I want you to see it on the screen, and then we'll parse it out. But it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, like I've told you before, we're going to study this today, but I've told you before, this passage that the rabbis actually got lost in. And after studying in in depth this week, I can see how they got lost because everything from the Bible, every narrative actually comes from that verse. It's seven letters in the Hebrew, which means perfection. It is the foundational passage of the whole entire Bible. Every narrative, whether I'm dealing with the church, I'm dealing with Israel, I'm dealing with the land of Israel, I'm dealing with the kingdom, if I'm dealing with eternity, all comes from this verse. And I see why rabbis devoted their whole life in studying this. This thing goes so deep, I actually got lost in it. I came up for error in my study of it. I'm like, okay, I got to back off on this because there's too much here. From every word in this passage right here, I could develop a whole year worth of sermons off of one word and watch the narrative follow itself all the way through the Bible. It's absolutely incredible to see this in a study-wise. And so, again, we're not going to do that because we don't have the time, but we're going to unpack this as much as I can on a Sunday morning and go our ways through Genesis to see this. But as you can see this, this is what America is founded on. This is what you and I, as Christians, base our whole understanding of Messiah, understanding of heaven, earth, everything comes from this verse, whether you know it or not. Everything in the Bible is based on this. This is the foundational level of everything. And what now, you know, it's being topsy-turvy in our culture, and they are intentionally doing this. Let me show you another passage in Psalm 11, verse 3, that is currently happening right now. If the foundations are destroyed... What can the righteous do? And that's what you and I are sitting here in America watching the foundations be destroyed, and you're saying, what can I do? 
Do you know the answer to what Psalm 11.3 is saying? Not much. When a whole society decides to jettison the foundation that God created the heavens and the earth, look out. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Because at that point, you will lose your moral moorings. You will lose those moral anchors. And up will become down, and left will become right. And as Isaiah 5 said, good will become evil, and evil will become good. Because the foundations are destroyed. Don't think for a moment that these people on the globe, these globalists, don't know this. It was said early on by the communists and the Marxists, in order to destroy America, you must destroy their morality. You must destroy the Judeo-Christian ethic. And then you can take America. Because America is too strong. America is too rich. America is too powerful militarily-wise. So we have to infiltrate and destroy the foundations. And guess what? Guess how they did this? Through our school systems. For the last 50 years, our school systems have been bent on undermining our foundations. That's what they're teaching our kids. The kids come out of public school and then out of the colleges and then the universities amoral, amoral, no morals. Anything goes. I do what I feel like, like Herbert Marcuse said, you know, make love, not war type of thing. There's no rules. I just do what I feel like doing. Do you know that's the first law in Satanism? Do what makes you feel good. That's Satanism. And Satanism, believe it or not, is being taught in the public schools and the colleges and the universities. Do what makes you feel good. Because Satan aimed at the United States to take our foundations out. What can you do when the society goes this way? Think about that. You're outmanned. You're outnumbered. I'm outnumbered. We don't control the narrative anymore. CNN's controlling the narrative, right? The fake news is controlling the narrative. The politicians that are just nothing but globalists are controlling the narrative. Do you really think that Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer or any of those people care about the foundations of the United States? No. No, they don't. They want to destroy them. Okay. So the Bible puts a warning out. And then also gives another warning in Proverbs 14.34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So when our nation as America was founded on this righteousness that came from the Judeo-Christian ethic, our nation was exalted. There's nothing that's ever been in the world, in world history, like the United States. Nothing has ever come close as far as the prosperity, the military power, or whatnot. It's amazing, amazing. So that being the case, though, but sin now is a reproach to any people, it says. Sin is a reproach, okay? We are now allowing, because of the foundations, sin to become normalized in our country. Let me give you an example of how crazy, when you destroy the foundations, what's happening just weeks ago on, I think it was an ABC show or NBC. It was one of these morning talk shows. And I think Michael Strahan is one of the commentators of it. Okay. Well, 
What they did is promote an 11-year-old cross-dressing boy who dresses like a girl to parade up and down during the news program. And they were all clapping and saying, oh, isn't this wonderful? He's just being him. And his motto is, just be real. You know what I want to say? All of you need to be arrested. The mother of that child who she's allowing to be a transvestite needs to be put in jail by CPS. That's child endangerment. But now, that's not in child endangerment. That is just you being you, and we need to celebrate your insanity. And that's the news programs, and that's what's happening. You can't say anything about it, otherwise you're a hater. You're coming down on him. Well, guess what? If we don't change anything, and these foundations are continuing to be eroded and destroyed, you will end up in what's called a Romans 1 society. If we're not already there, I don't know. I want you to read this long passage in Romans. This is Romans 1, and it's tied to Genesis 1. Paul expected that we knew Genesis 1 when he made this comment, okay? Because Genesis 1 just assumes the creator, okay? But he made this statement, and you can, this is in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, this is interesting. Paul is saying it's not the lack of evidence for God. It's that people out there in the society suppress the evidence for him. They don't want to say it exists. They turn a blind eye to it. So it's not the lack of evidence. God has given enough evidence for everyone to know he exists. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. The conscious bears witness, for God has shown it to them. They see it in the creation, their conscious bearing witness, history, providence, everything. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and foolish hearts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, here's the deal. Because they deny God, because they say, you know what? I don't want to serve this creator. I understand there's a creator, but I'm going to ignore the witnessing that God has given to me. This is what starts happening. Their foolish hearts are darkened. Professing to be wise, they think they're so smart, they become fools and change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Let's stop right there. Now you think, well, we're not doing what the ancients did. Uh, our society's not making idols to a, a lizard or the tree god or whatnot. No, no, it's the same, but it's different. What do you mean? Well, instead of making four-footed animals, humans are worshiping themselves. Humans are worshiping government. Humans are worshiping money. Humans are worshiping materialism. It doesn't matter. That's Paul's point, is the minute a society or a culture or an individual that says, I don't want to worship God, they will worship something else, whether themselves, money, material, whatever. And because of that, it triggers something in them. They start going crazy. They start getting out of reality. They don't make sense anymore. And he says, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. So here's what happens. Not only do they start going crazy, God removes the barriers from them. I want you to think society-wise. I don't believe in a creator. I believe in someone else, they start saying. And then God says, fine, I'm going to let you go. And look what the sign is when a culture 
or a nation or an individual has been let go, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature, lesbianism. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, homosexuality, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. So there's a built-in penalty. Once an individual goes there, there's an individual penalty in them. They'll start killing them. The sign that Paul says that when you see someone given over, when a culture is not worshiping the creator, rather than, and now worshiping the creation, the sign that you will see is rampant homosexuality and lesbianism. Ask yourself, do I see this today? Yes. Guess what? There is no guessing anymore of whether or not the United States has been given over. It has. It's there. The sign's all there. And now we've moved into even more radical things called transvestism and whatever. Whatever you want it, whatever they're doing now. Prancing an 11-year-old down a stage. And by the way, you know what the mom did after the news thing? She let him prance through a gay bar while gay men put dollars in his dress. That's how bad America is. And they were celebrating. Oh, isn't this wonderful? Welcome to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where we're at. And Paul makes no mistake. This is the sign. It continues. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual morality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also prove of those who practice them. They applaud them. That's just describing our colleges and universities, our public schools. It just described the media. It just described our politics. And it just described Hollywood. Those are the four areas that we're having a problem in that's turning our culture over to this anti-God sentiment, anti-creator. Now, when you see that, again, that's why we go back to when the righteous see this and the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Not too much. You can be salt and light and rescue as many as you can by the gospel, but do not think for a moment that once a society has been turned over that you're going to reclaim the society. It's been turned over for judgment. This mentality, well, we're going to have a revival, is absolutely insane. The Bible doesn't predict a revival. It predicts it ends bad and goes into the tribulation. Now, you say, well, that's pessimistic. You're messing up my Sunday. You're messing up my week. I don't want you to make me feel bad about the way the world's going. Then how do you describe what's happening? This is why we're in the Scriptures. Let's look at the scriptures and what it says and how we take our stand against this decaying culture and how we don't let allow it to happen in us or in our own personal families. So let's unpack the seven words of the Hebrew. We'll start from the Hebrew and we'll flush it out as the Hebrew is written, okay? So in the Hebrew, the first words are written in our English word is in the beginning or it's one word, Bereshit. 
and it gives the idea of in the beginning, but there's more here. Let's unpack this. When you see this word, in the beginning, Bereshit, it gives an idea here that this is not a point in time, but this is a distinct period of time that is different from the six days of creation. It is like a first phase. It is a first step, and it's a time before another time. Now, what I'm not suggesting, the Hebrew is not suggesting what we call the gap theory, which liberals are trying to accommodate evolution said, well, they use this gap to explain the millions and millions of years. That's wrong. That's liberal. That's accommodation. It's wrong. Okay. But the Hebrew is by the word Bereshit saying that this was a time before a time. So the time before the time is obviously this creation happened prior to the six days of creation, okay? So you have to get that in mind. It's an independent clause in the Hebrew. It's not connected to verse 2, and it's not connected to verse 3 and whatever follows. It's an independent clause. And it's not a summation. It is not a title. And I've had to drill down on this and what the rabbis are saying, even what Christian theologians are saying. It is an independent clause. It is suggesting that God originally created the heavens and the earth, and then something happened between verse 1 and verse 2. I won't tell you what happened until next week, but something happened, and I will explain to you what happened. But there was an original period of time where God created all matter, all space, all time there, and then what you see in Genesis 2, 3, and following is a recreation from judgment. That might give you a clue. You can work on that this week, okay? What judgment happened prior to the six days of creation? We'll talk about it. But I'll leave it at that. You got to come back next week to hear that one. Okay. So it's a time before time, but this is interesting. Another aspect of this Bereshit, it includes in the Hebrew the concept of the last days. And I see now why Moses did this. Okay, what do you mean? It's not just a starting point. It's saying there's a starting point and there's a time frame that it starts and then a culmination of this time. It's all embedded in the Hebrew. And the idea is this, that contained in the word Bereshit is what we term the last days. Even in the term, that in the beginning, so he's saying there's a time, there's a span of time, and that time will end with what's called the last days. Believe it or not, this is why in the very first verse, Genesis is related to the book of Revelation. The last days are incorporated into the Hebrew text. And this is where actually the beginning of the understanding of eschatology comes from. Now, we just got done studying the book of Revelation. And you saw the last days, and you saw how it ends, right? But it doesn't end with just Armageddon. It ends with what? A new heaven and a new earth, right? And the new Jerusalem, right? Okay, here's what Bereshit is trying to say. Catch this. The idea is that the last things will be like the first things. Whoa. 
Now it makes sense in the book of Revelation why there's a return to a garden of Eden. That's better, a mineral garden, but the tree of life is there. And you have very similar things in Revelation 21 and 22 that actually match Genesis 1. Absolutely brilliant. Humans couldn't do this. This has to be the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to do that. That the first days or the last days will be like the first days, but better is embedded in that word Bereshit. Amazing. Amazing. Okay, so then let's get moving to the idea of created. So Bereshit, and then you have bara. So that's how the Hebrew flushes out. So it goes, in the beginning, created. And the word bara in Hebrew is only a word that's used of God. It's not used of human beings. And so this word has the idea of fresh, new. It's used for God controlling nature. It's used for God controlling living creatures. And by the way, it's used for God creating the nation of Israel. And an implicit in all of this that God creates, he creates Israel, he creates the animals, the living organisms, is the term ex nihilo, which is a Latin term, which means out of nothing. So this word bara in Hebrew is given the idea that only God can do this, and it gives the idea that he creates out of nothing. Now, you think, okay, I get that, but you understand in the context in which this was given in to the ancient Israelites coming out of the Exodus, the way the Mesopotamian mind thought is that the gods just refashioned stuff and used what was there and refashioned the world. So these pantheon of gods that existed used the eternal matter to refashion things. Genesis is totally opposite. It's saying, no, 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 no. He didn't just refashion anything. He made brand new stuff out of nothing. Whoa. And if a God can do that, then he is the one true God. He doesn't reshape anything. So he speaks it into existence. Now, again, we'll see this in Genesis. He speaks things into existence. And the question is, well, how does he do that? Well, that's not answered because... He doesn't explain how that. He explains the that. So you understand you have to differentiate in your mind the how versus the that. I don't know how God speaks things into existence because he's all-powerful and can do anything he wants to do. All I have to accept is this, that it happened, that he spoke it into existence. That's all I need to understand, and that's what this word is giving me the idea of is I just need to bow a knee to it. And that's what people don't want to bow a knee to. They don't want to think that this universe was spoken into existence. Why? By this all-powerful being. Because they intuitively know that if they tip their hat to this and say, yes, God spoke everything into existence, they must bow a knee to. Because they're a creature that owes their existence to him. And by right, he has every right to call their worship. 
to have them on their knees before him, worshiping him. But that's the problem. They don't want to do that. So they have to come up with fanciful stories like Darwinian evolution or that aliens put us here or that aliens uh, hitchhiked on an asteroid and life created from the primordial soup. They have to have that narrative in order to not bow a knee. That's what this is all about. Then let's move to the word that's used for God. So it goes, Bereshit, uh, bara. Then Elohim. This is the title for God. It's not his personal name, but it is the title for God. And here's the thing about this. It doesn't try to prove that God exists. It just assumes it. And the reason that it can assume it is that God put his law on every human being's heart. Everybody in their own conscience knows that there's a God. They look at creation. They look at providence. They look at history. They know there's a God intuitively. And because of that, the Bible just says, God exists, and you know it. That's the way it's being framed here. And so it's not like it's trying to prove he exists is, is the idea. And so that's why Scripture says the fool says there's no God because they see all the evidence for him. So there's this assumption that he did this. Well, the issue then becomes there's all this evidence for God, and there's a, a complete denial of it. And so the idea, like Paul said, when we'll turn to Romans 1, is they suppress it. They don't listen to it. And so the longer you suppress it, the harder you become. The harder your heart becomes. And when you suppress it long enough, what ends up happening, like the Apostle Paul said, you go blind. You go spiritually blind. You start doing crazy things. You check out of reality. And so this whole idea of this assumption that God exists should be normal. This is why when you talk to little kids, you don't have any problem convincing a child that God exists. They automatically assume it, right? Because their hearts are tender. Their hearts are not been ruined by their own callousness. Now, interesting enough, in this term Elohim, it shows that creation was personal, that an intelligent designer did this, that Elohim is a title for this one true God, and that it's not caused by a force. The Big Bang didn't start it, and, you know, nothing comes from nothing, and they want to convince you that, that time plus matter plus chance equals the world, and that's insane logically, and same from, it's insane from a physical standpoint as well, and the laws of physics. But what it's saying with Elohim is that this being, it doesn't identify who the being is, but this being is an intelligent designer, and he's personal, not an impersonal force. Now, follow me. You know who this being is. It's Yahweh, right? But it's just stating this, that Elohim did this. In order for this God to create all the universe and everything you see, it was a personal choice of his, and this being must be very caring for us. How so? When you look at how incredible the design of the human body is, the design of the planet, the design of our solar system, it is completely fine-tuned for our benefit. It is definitely anthropocentric. It's geocentric, which means that God did this for us. So this idea that there's aliens in vast places all around the planet, no, no, no. The Bible is militating against that. The Bible is saying, no, this is the focus this is where I put all the benefits. For instance, the laws of nature, gravity, all these things work to our favor. 
The gas levels, the oxygen levels work to our favor. The amount of water on the planet works to our favor. Into the human body, the DNA structure, the, the complexity of the eye, how organisms grow. You get trees from trees, humans from humans. is extremely complex. But the complexity points that this designer loves his creation because he did everything for their benefit. Our position in the Milky Way galaxy is to our benefit. The positions of the planets in our solar system is to our benefit. How so? The planet Jupiter takes all the big asteroids and gravitates them towards it instead of hitting planet Earth. Have you noticed that even our moon, without our moon, our seas would die? And by the way, our moon, have you noticed how pelted it is? Why is it being pelted, but you don't see the pelt marks on the planet Earth? It takes a lot of the asteroid hits, like Jupiter does. Our distance from the sun, just a few inches closer, we burn up. A few inches behind it, we freeze. It's perfectly aligned for four seasons. How did it do that? On its own random chance? No, no, a designer did this who cares for humans. That's what you get out of it. And notice this, embryonic in the word Elohim is what we call a unity and a plurality about this God that did this. A unity and a plurality. There's Elohim is singular, but it's also plural in the Hebrew. And so when you have this embryonic plurality, you have the understanding that yes, there's one God, but there's multiple identities in this one God. Now, the rabbis saw this, by the way, and they didn't like it because they thought, well, we're dealing with polyistic cultures around us. We can't go that way. And so they kind of shunned this whole teaching of the plurality in the unity of God. And so it was kind of shunned. But all over the Old Testament, you'll see this plurality of identities in the Godhead. Well, now being Christians and removed from all that, we know what that means. It implies the Trinity right there in the name Elohim. It's not the plural majesty of God or talking about his powers. It's talking that this one God has multiple identities in him or in the nature of him. And we obviously know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you'll see that the whole dynamic play out when we see the six days of creation. But it's opening the door. So what does that mean then? That this Elohim, this being who's eternal, has everlasting power, eliminates the other gods of other religions. Elohim is not Allah. Elohim is not the God of the Mormons or the God of the Jehovah Witnesses. He is not Hinduism's many gods. He's not obviously atheism in Buddhism. He's a, they don't believe in any gods. He trumps that. Basically this, guys, this term Elohim destroys all other religions, all of them, by just the name. Now you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Guess what? When you try to tell somebody you're worshiping the moon god, you're worshiping the figment of Joseph Smith's imagination, guess what kind of pushback you're going to get? 
because we believe in this one God and he is the only God and there is no other gods, it says, you're going to be called a religious bigot because the new movement now is, well, we all worship the same God. He just has different names. No, he doesn't. He is not the same. This is the Elohim of the Bible, a unity and plurality, obviously, that comes out to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So all these cults, all these false religions are eliminated. The third thing that we see from this name is that he's a necessary being. What do you mean? Well, this is not some localized tribal god. Or be, you know, he's beyond localization. He is beyond space, time, and matter. He created everything. Well, that being the case, he is a necessary being, and he becomes what's called the uncaused cause. And that's what the scriptures are trying to say. Well, what do you mean? Everything in this world needs a cause. Okay? But with God, he doesn't need a cause. Well, what do you mean? How, how, how does God not need a cause? Because matter comes from matter. Or, you know, and so, you know, or sorry, matter doesn't produce matter. It just doesn't create anything new. It just turns into a different energy form. In order for matter to exist, you have to have an uncaused cause. What do you mean? This is why they go to the Big Bang instead of saying God. Notice this. I'm using scientific definitions and philosophical definitions to describe the God of the Bible. This is what they say, secular world. For this uncaused cause to create the universe, this uncaused cause has to be eternal. He has to be without matter. He has to have unlimited power. Now, what does that think? Think about that. That's what scientists say. In order for the universe to be created, you have to have those qualifications. Why can't God be matter? He's spirit, right? Why can't he be? Because matter doesn't come from matter. You have to be able to create the matter. And so because God is spirit, he can create matter because he's not matter himself. And matter changes. And he's unchangeable. So this first cause has to be unchangeable. And he has to have unlimited power. That sounds like the God of the Bible. And it's amazing that scientists even get that close in describing the God of the Bible, and they won't make the step over. They won't say the uncaused cause is Elohim. But that's what this name is implying, that this being has unlimited power. He's eternal. He's spirit. And he's the uncaused cause. They won't make the step. Hmm. I wonder why. And then what did he create? This uncaused cause, Elohim, created, it says, the heavens. And really in the Hebrew, it's shamayim. It's plural. And it's the three heavens that Paul talked about. It's the heavens of our atmosphere. It's space or the universe. And then it's heaven itself, the third abode where God exists. So all the ideas of space is there. So shamayim means space. In order for a universe to exist, it has to have space. It has to have boundaries, and it does. And the boundaries actually are expanding, just as God said. He rolls it out like a scroll. So you have the space that's created, and then it says the earth then is created. And this is the arets, matter. All matter then is then created at this point, and including planet earth as well. But the earth is different, and I'll show you next week 
how the earth is different at this point in time. But anyway, the idea is he then creates matter. Okay, this uncaused cause creates matter. Okay, so space, matter, and then embedded in space and matter, you have to have time. So space, matter, and time, the three components of the universe are then created. Notice interesting is three components, space, time, matter. What you'll see in creation, and it's everywhere, is the thumbprint of Elohim all over creation. Do you know why? You'll see a tripart type in his creation. You'll see threes everywhere in creation. They're ev- Guess how weak he created us? Tripartite. Body, soul, spirit. Elohim is three. One God, three identities. So you'll see space, time, and matter, three. Threes are everywhere. I don't care what you study, you'll find threes. You know how many DNA codes there are? Three. Three main ones. That's it. Every every human being either has a combination of the three or one or two or whatever, but it's only three DNA codes. There's only three. Isn't that interesting? Everything has threes all over it, and they don't know how to explain this, but God has put his stamp on there. So with this privilege that we have, we are in a privileged position. God has made this for us. He's put us in a privileged position where the oxygen levels, the atmosphere, mantle is there to protect us. Gravity is there. If you had too much gravity or less gravity, we couldn't exist. All this other stuff works in our favor. So you basically have a tri-universe that has been created. Basically, I like what Henry Morris said about this. He said, the idea, the first sentence of Genesis is this, the transcendent, omnipotent Godhead called into existence the space, mass, time, universe. Bingo. That's what he said. That's exactly what Genesis said. Now, some application from this. I know it's a lot. I'm not going to go through this, but I wanted to give you this in your bulletin. And it's kind of Genesis 1 versus humanistic theologies. And you can take that home, study it. What I want you to know from this is that in all of those humanistic theologies, atheism, agnosticism, pantheism, panentheism, polytheism, materialism, naturalism, dualism, humanism, they all exist today. And here's the commonality with all of them. You can study them on your own. The commonality is this. One side doesn't include Elohim, the God of the Bible, and one, the Genesis 1 does. On one side, the humanistic theologies create man with the idea that he's getting better, with the idea he's going to reach his potential. And some of them, believe it or not, believe he's going to become a god or he's going to evolve into something greater than he is now. Genesis 1, which leads into what's going to happen to man, is that mankind is hopeless without this uncaused cause called Elohim that mankind is heading for destruction if Elohim doesn't intervene. And that's the, the idea of the two mindsets. But let's do some application. This is a tough one. The application is this in Genesis. You've got to see the big picture. And what's the big picture? Elohim, the creator, has the right or authority and the power to tell us what to do. That's what Moses is trying to state. And he's stating it to Israel, right? Because what is he going to do with Israel? He's going to give them the law. 
And he's saying, this one God who created you, created Israel, created you as a human being, has the authority and the power to tell you what to do. In other words, in our language, he's the boss. Okay, that's the big idea. He's the boss. If, if a being such as this, who is an uncaused, eternal being spirit, has this kind of power and created me and you, then I have to bow a knee to him. That's the idea. Okay, so follow me along this. Okay, that's the big idea. I'm going to drill down on the application. So it's just like a parent who tells their kids what to do. As a parent, a parent possesses the authority to tell a kid, hey, I want you to clean your room. Okay? So God has that authority over us. Okay, so here's where people start getting off. The devil will convince you or you will convince yourself that your issues are not spiritual issues. Now, follow me on this. Again, God created the heavens and earth. It means he created all things. Okay, follow me. In the biblical mindset or the Hebrew mindset, there was no bifurcation between what you did in your life versus what happened in the heavenlies. That heaven, because he created the earth and the shamayim, the heavens and the earth, they were interconnected. Now follow me. What that meant that nothing happened on earth independent from what's happening in heaven, which meant that in the whole Hebrew mindset, everything the Hebrews did was spiritual. Their work was spiritual. And that even growing a plant, a flower, they knew that they had to water it, they saw it grow, but they said that plant doesn't grow without Elohim making it grow. Now, it wasn't an over-spiritualization. They just knew everything on physical earth was tied to the heavenlies. And it is. They're right. We get messed up because we don't know the Shemayim and the earth are interconnected because they're created by Elohim. Okay. So here's what happens. We start thinking, okay, I understand God's the boss. But at my work, I have these problems, and those are my work problems. Or in my marriage, I have my marriage problems, and those are my marriage problems. And then over here, I have my parenting problems, and those are my parenting problems. But none of them are interrelated, and none of them have to do with my, quote-unquote, spiritual problems. You following me? So what ends up happening is we convince ourselves, or the devil does, to say, well, those are those in that category, and those are those in that category, but you're not understanding that the Shamayim and the Aretz are connected. Hence, let me rephrase it. Your work problems are spiritual problems. Your parenting problems are spiritual problems, and your marriage problems are spiritual problems. Oh, what are you saying? Well, I'm saying this. Because the Shamayim and the Aretz are connected in the creation by Elohim, what has happened to you at work, you may not have caused it, but it is your spiritual problem. And let's say you didn't cause what's happening at work, okay? But things are coming at you, right? You're required to respond biblically to that. 
And a lot of people just don't do that. It's not even in their heads because they see it separate from spirituality where the Hebrew mindset never saw the difference. What I did at work has spiritual ties to it. Marriage. Well, I'm having marriage problems and it's just because we're fighting and yada, yada, yada. No, no. Every marriage problem is a spiritual problem. Whether you started it or not, whether you're responding correctly or not, it's a spiritual problem. So back to God is the boss. If he's the creator and he has the authority to tell you and I what to do, and we're supposed to bow a knee to it, then you have to bow a knee to what he's saying about your work. You have to bow a knee to what he's saying about your marriage. And you have to bow a knee to what he's saying about your parenting or whatever issue it is. You follow me? Okay. If you do not, if you do not, and you separate it out and say, well, that's not, that's not, that's certainly not God's issue. If God is the boss and he has every right to tell us what to do, I then must accept what he says in my job, what to do, or my parenting, or my marriage, because all my problems are thus spiritual. So here's a test case. Am I getting better at my marriage, or my job, or whatever, in handling the problems? If I'm not, that means I'm not growing. It signals to me that I'm not growing. If I'm handling things well, from a biblical way, that means I'm growing. So the two are interconnected. Okay? You cannot go through life separating what you do on Monday morning from what you're doing here. You just can't do that. Everything you do is spiritual. Okay, So you have to keep that in mind. Okay, So God has the authority. He's the boss. But then notice the because he's the uncaused cause and he has unlimited power means that he does have the power to enforce things. You as a parent have the power and authority over your kids. Well, what do you mean? What about power? You have physical power over your kids, right? You can put them in a timeout. You can put them grounded. You can take things away. Or you can spank them because you possess the authority and power. Okay? God also possesses power as well, unlimited. And it should frighten every one of us to think about that kind of power. If a, a being can create everything by just simply saying it, that should shock you. That should frighten you. And that's why Paul used the word terror when he's referring to God. Because that part should shock you. It should scare you. Because you're going to stand in front of a being who has unlimited power to squash you. Who could make you not exist in an instant. Not that he would. But he's got that kind of power. Yikes. Whoa. Okay. That means he has the power to enforce things as he wants to. So that's why he's embedded in the fabric of society, the law of reaping and sowing. If you do this, you will kill yourself. And then he embeds into us discipline or punishment or whatever he needs to do if we do not follow through with it. That's pretty scary. That not only do we have to bow a knee to it, if we don't, he then has the power to do something about us not doing that. That should scare everybody. And it's a healthy fear. This is where the Proverbs comes in, where the fear of the Lord becomes an issue for us. The fear of the Lord, a reverential awe that, oof, I better march in order. I better do what he wants me to do. That being the case, let's end on this. We're watching our society not bow a knee to Elohim. We're watching our society destroy our foundations. And it says, what are the righteous to do? Well, the takeaway is this. It's time to now bow a knee to Elohim. 
if you haven't already. And if you're a believer, to bow a knee to Elohim in all these pockets of your life. You cannot separate your life and say, well, that's just work. And what happens at work stays at work. No, it doesn't. That stuff will follow you home. It comes and becomes a spiritual problem for you. Or my marriage, that's just there, and I just got to deal with that, and I'll just deal with that. And No, 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 it's a spiritual problem. You're having a spiritual problem in your marriage, whatever the issue is. And understand, I God's the boss, and I just need to do what he tells me to do. Not that things will go hunky-dory, don't, don't get me wrong, but God's way is the only way. He is the speaker of reality. He tells us what to do and what not to do. But understand, he has the power to enforce things. And you don't want to mess with that power. I don't want to mess with that power. That power can discipline us, can take us home early, can do a lot of things, even though we're believers. Do not think for a moment that you're just going to cozy up to Elohim and he's your big buddy and he'll turn a blind eye to what you're doing. He is not that way. And you will see what he tells Israel. If you do good, I will bless you. If you don't, I will curse you. That's the whole theme of Genesis. Let us not forget that now as we enter into Genesis and start studying it. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.